Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. I'm Steve Weinstein, and you're listening to Sorry, Partner. Hello, and welcome to Sorry, Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with American champion Steve Weinstein about learning to enjoy the wins, the family that is the bridge community, and the pleasure of holding real cards. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm great. How are you, Catherine? Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. I've been thinking a lot about the future of bridge. Um, you know, obviously people are a bit concerned about it. That's an understatement. But um, there's been some really great ideas talked about on the show. You know, I enjoyed Jessica Larson talking about the day of bridge in Sweden. Day of bridge. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I thought that was so fun. And I was thinking, oh gosh, it'd be really good fun to make that a global thing. Global day of bridge. Yeah. You know, imagine coordinated and um, people could set up on train stations and shopping malls and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I love the idea of setting up in the middle of Busy thoroughfares. I I am quite drawn to the idea of public transport. I think that's funny. Train stations. I just like that idea. You know, and just other public places that people tend to gravitate towards, you know, even the local gym. I just think it'd be so funny if you went to the gym and someone was, you know, if there was a group of people sitting there at a table. There's so many fun places that I think people could set up and play and so many people who are so enthusiastic about the game. I'm sure a lot of people who get a group of four together and arranged to set up a table somewhere, even the local library. I mean, there's so many places, the supermarket. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, I mean, I think in workplaces, also people have made a bridge thing happen at the workplace. And that probably inspires other people to, to join in and see what it's all about. And so, yeah, so I'm kind of inspired to, to go see if I can get a, a lunchtime bridge game going at, at work. 
That'd be cool. And I was thinking too, it'd be really fun if people send in pictures if they've played with people in interesting places. Yes. Maybe send us in some photos so that we can post them and give people ideas about where they might set up. (laughs) Hi, my name is Jeff. I've been a fan of Sorry Partner from day one. That's when my occasional teammate, Jocelyn, sent me the original email announcement about this new podcast. Jocelyn and Catherine have created something unique and useful. It's one thing to read about the world's top players, but it's an entirely different thing to hear pros talk about their favorite game. My primary takeaways are the pros' tips to maintaining, supporting, and elevating partnerships. I like hearing about who they'd want to have on their dream teams and why. And I appreciate their anecdotes, insights into the world of professional bridge, off-the-wall snafus, and their thoughts on what it is that makes bridge such a great game. Creating these weekly insightful podcasts takes money, donations from listeners like you. So here's how you can help. Go to sorrypartner.com and click on the support the show tab on the top, which takes you to the secure Patreon page. And then give generously. So our first letter today is from Carl, and Carl writes, When I was playing regularly at a club as a drop-in, I would sometimes get paired up with elderly players, and it could be a bit hit or miss in terms of shared conventions and their ability. Once I was playing with a lady who seemed to lose focus during the game and went down on an easy 3 no trump contract. I snapped at her a bit and felt bad about it, but it woke her up. Two hands later, we ended up in 3-no-Trump again and she was totally on top of it, getting us a 100% for the hand and some points for the day. Even though the bridge community puts a lot of chalk into bringing more young people to the game, let's not forget that a lot of our elders are playing the game expressly to keep themselves sharp and deserve accolades for being there and for doing so well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many times have you been playing against, you know, someone in their nineties <laughs> and they're just so on the ball. And I just think, I, I hope this is our goal. Yes. This is our goal. The car yeah. shark octogenarian or non-agenarian. Yes. That's what we are aspiring to 100%. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just take them for whatever they are worth. <laughs> and <laughs> they won't know what hit them. <laughs> they will not look out. You have been warned. And speaking of, some of our more senior compatriots and their passion for the game. Our next letter today is from Bill in Hawaii, and he writes, Aloha. Aloha. Mm -hmm. I direct for a small club once a week and have a marvellous story to share about the love of bridge. A sweet older lady in her mid-80s went to the doctor to complain about her ankle hurting. The doctor explained she had arthritis and there was little that they could do, but to make her feel better, he said they'd do an X-ray. She hobbled into the church where we play and her telephone rang. It turned out the x-ray showed it wasn't arthritis, that her ankle was broken. They asked her to come into the office immediately to have the bones set in a cast. But she said she couldn't because the bridge game was about to start. (laughs) They explained that they closed at four. So the lady said, all right, I'll see what I can do. She played all but the last hand and had me fill in for her so that she could make it to the doctor's moments before they closed. (laughs) I love her love of playing bridge, Bill. That's fantastic. I love it, love it, love it, love it. Well, someone has their priorities straight. Absolutely. Totally straight. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Jocelyn, based on a number of letters that we've received, we seem to be experiencing a no dummy epidemic. Uh, you might remember a letter recently from Diane about people not putting down their dummy and oh. another one from Sarah <laughs> forgetting to lay down their dummy. I know. Nobody wants to be a dummy. No, that's right. It's my favorite part of the game. (laughs) It's the one I truly excel at. (laughs) Our next letter today is from Laurie, who wrote to us a little while ago, Jocelyn, with a story that someone had shared with her on a flight. Yes, because Laurie herself didn't have any good enough stories, but lo and behold, her her seatmate on the flight had a fabulous one. A fabulous one about swearing when playing bridge in the Midwest and underestimating her opponents. Well, Laurie has written to us with a story of her own (laughs) on this theme of dummies and no dummies. (laughs) The spate of dummyless tables. This spate of dummyless tables. Yes. Or as she calls it, all dummies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. So tell us about Laurie. Okay. Laurie writes to us, hi there, something interesting happened at my local bridge club, so here goes. This game was a bit larger than normal because our local six-digit master point bridge teacher came to visit our club and taught a class on defence. We had a game afterwards. A few hands into the round, someone called, director please, and our director responded. And then a few moments later, she asked the celebrated bridge teacher to join the table because something had happened that she had not seen before. The hand had been played through trick eight or nine and no dummy had been put down. (laughs) When the director arrived, the first thing she asked was, who is the dummy? The response came back, we are all dummies. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) By the way, no penalty was assessed. The correct dummy laid down her remaining hand and play continued. Regards, Laurie. That's so funny. (laughs) You know, that brings to mind something that happened just last week when I was playing and my partner was the dealer and she passed. Her right-hand opponent passes. Now, (laughs) the bidding is supposed to go clockwise (laughs) and her right-hand opponent, who is a very good player, (laughs) but she, (laughs) she passed and we were all looking at her and we eventually... My partner called the director and the director had a whole thing about what to do. Yeah. Because it was just, it was completely strange. But I thought that was so funny. And it turns out that the right-hand opponent who bid in the wrong direction has a poor sense of left and right. Mm. I know she is very good at visualizing, you know, making spatial relations and connections and logical inferences. So I thought that was fascinating that she has somehow an issue with clockwise or left and rights. Right. And you'd think if nothing else, some kind of muscle memory would kick in that you would just know in your bones who was to bid next. (laughs) But no, 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 no. Well, Laurie, thank you for writing in and it's great to hear from you and great to hear your story. Thank you, Laurie. And our final letter today, Jocelyn, is from Tracy, and this is another no dummy situation. Tracy writes, hi there, Catherine and Jocelyn. Love, love the podcast. And she is forwarding it to all her bridge people. Nice. Thank you, Tracy. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Tracy. 
I heard a funny bridge story last night and wanted to share it with you. My husband and I were at a large benefit and I was chatting with some women to whom I'd just been introduced. The conversation soon turned to bridge, not a shocker. My husband says that miraculously bridge finds its way into every conversation. (laughs) Anyway, imagine my delight to find out that these people were also bridge players. And they were hooked. They loved the way Bridge provided an introduction to so many people who they wouldn't ordinarily have met. And they also loved to go on Bridge holidays. Then one of them told me what happened on their very first Bridge trip together. Apparently, they were having cocktails before going out to dinner and decided to play a few hands. They dealt a hand or two, and at some point during the third hand, after about six or seven tricks had been played, one of them paused and said, wait a minute, isn't one of us supposed to be the dummy? (laughs) I seem to recall. (laughs) What are his hands supposed to be doing? (laughs) Needless to say, we all had a good laugh about it and I told them about the podcast and they gave me permission to submit the story and said they would look forward to listening to us discussing it. And then Tracy says, keep up the good work, warmest wishes, Tracy. And Jocelyn, you might remember Tracy was the woman who wrote to us wanting to give a shout out to her friend for becoming a life master. Yes. 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 And that's a very clean segue for me to say, happy anniversary, partner. We've smoothly passed our first year. O-M-G. That's so great. So great. Congratulations. Congratulations to you too. Any highlights? You mean other than getting to talk to bridge superstars from all over the world every week? Hmm. Hmm. And hearing from uh, hearing from listeners with their fabulous, funny stories that make us all feel like we're part of one big, happy bridge community. Nah, I, I can't think of anything. <laughs> nah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nah. Mm-mm. Congratulations to you, partner. Yeah, congratulations to you, partner. And thanks everyone so much for listening and being part of the crew. So if you have any fun stories about milestones or octogenarian card sharks or everybody's a dummy, nobody's a dummy, we'd love to hear about them. So please send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram, or you can send us a voice message. These links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Steve Weinstein. American champion Steve Weinstein is the youngest winner of the ACBL Life Master Pairs and the most frequent winner of the Cavendish Invitational Pairs, having seven pairs wins, as well as four Cavendish teams wins. He has taken gold twice at the World Championships for the World Open Pairs and the Rosenblum Cup, has won four United States Bridge Championships, and has won more than 20 North American Bridge Championships. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. I mean... It was like a hand that was kind of cool yesterday in a very strange way. Bobby Levin, my partner, and I were practicing against Nick Nickel and Ralph Katz, my teammates. And Nick Nickel is really into wish tricks. I don't know if you guys or your listeners know what a wish trick is, but that's like an ace, a two, a three, and a four is the classic wish trick on the same trick. 
I think that's a normal wish trick. A low wish trick, I think, is two, three, four, five. A high wish trick is ace, king, queen, jack. A multicolored wish trick is like ace, two, three, four, but different. You something's getting trumped or pitched, and so I I know very few of the wish trick rules, but this is something that Nick's been involved with for longer <laughs> than I've been alive. So yesterday, while we were practicing, Nick picked up a hand and he was defending. I mean, it was it was brilliant. And I'm gonna he had the queen seven six of spades, the ace king jack ten six three of hearts. The queen jack seven three of diamonds and no clubs. And I, I on his right opened a club. He bit a heart. Bobby bid one no. When passed by Ralph, Nick's partner. I bid two clubs. Nick doubled for takeout. Bobby bid three clubs and it went all pass. Now, the brilliance of this hand is that Nick and Ralph would normally lead ace from ace king. That's a normal lead or king of hearts. Or if he was going to lead a diamond, he'd lead the queen of diamonds. Or if he was going to lead, a low diamond, he would lead the seven because they play third and fifth. But Nick found the three of diamonds lead, creating a wish trick at trick one because Bobby had the ace, Ralph had the two, and I had the four. And I really believe, I didn't ask him, but I think he did this knowing he was creating this potential wish trick on this hand that was just insane that he could realize this. So it was one of the best opening leads I've ever seen. Did you ask him about it afterwards? Well, of course we talked about it. I mean, yeah, Bobby yeah. and I missed, missed a cold 3 no, which we tried to like skip over that part and just talk about the brilliance of the opening lead. And, and I think he really actually, like he had this wish trick in his head. And that, that was a great imagination. That's great. Aren't you supposed to like rap or something or there's something you're supposed to say or knock when you do the ace, two, three, four? I mean, maybe amateurs say that, but I mean, Nick is like, he doesn't have to that. He's a professional. <laughs> I'm curious if this is part of the reason that you love bridge. Um, I, I do love things like the fun in the game and stuff. And the learning to enjoy the game is something that I wasn't so good at as I was younger. You know, I would take losses a lot harder than, than I would enjoy the wins. And and as I've gotten older, and actually Nick has been a great person to be around for really appreciating wins because he, he's won as much or more than anybody. And he is the most graceful loser. He takes it great and you can't say anything, but he really loves his winning. And I, I think that he's helped teach me how to enjoy winning, which was really kind of special. In preparation for our interview today, I watched a couple of videos of you on YouTube and one thing that really struck me is how warm you are with everybody. It's always big <laughs> hugs with everybody. Now, but really? I was also, yeah, but I was also mindful that the interviews were relatively recent. And I'm just wondering if this is related to your enjoying of the wins, if as you've become or experienced, your sense of the meaning of bridge has changed. I don't know so much of that. I mean, I think it's like I like the people I like and I like them a real lot. And most people I don't either know or have that much of a relationship with, but the people I like, I'm, I feel very warm, warm towards. So thinking about your regular partner, Bobby Levin, what might Bobby say is the greatest strength that you bring to the game, to your partnership? I, I think he just knows that, you know, I'm a great competitor and and if things are going bad, and let's say I'm personally playing badly, you know, I'll be like much more likely to be a jerk because I'm in a much worse mood if I'm playing badly. But I really can step it up and 
turn it around from playing bad to, to playing really much, much better or well, or however you'd want to describe it. So I think that I could turn a weakness into a strength. I'd prefer to never play bad, but unfortunately, that's just not going to happen to anybody in our lifetime. Is that a question of, of stamina and stick to that you have, grit? I, I mean, I, I think I do have a lot of experience playing card games for long hours from my background playing poker and bridge and a lot of extended card games. So I think I do have the stamina, but I just think that I have like a, another gear I can kick into that, you know, I could get myself out of reverse or whatever I was in and, and, and write the ship pretty well. And, and, you know, Bobby had said to me, like, after a bad set, when I, when I played poorly, he was like, he said, well, I was sure you were going to just like play great in the fourth quarter or something like that. And I seem to be able, hopefully, yeah, that doesn't stop, but uh, <laughs> I seem to be able to turn it around when it's going poorly to, to be able to write my brain and, and get it back working again. And what a lovely thing that Bobby said that to you. Yeah, I remember him saying it. It really, you know, it gives you confidence. It's really nice. I would say both of us are much more likely to be upset with the other one when we make our own mistakes. Like Bobby is in a worse mood when he's playing a mistake and I'm in a worse mood when I'm making a mistake. And then the partnership mistakes when you're not sure, that can cause a big fight too. <laughs> have you had any of those? Well, we certainly have. We don't have them publicly. I mean, we've had them on email. We've posted some of them on bridge winners, like some Grand Slam. We bid off the Ace of Trumps in the finals of Vanderbilt. We post our email exchange and how we had our fight and stuff. I think we've done a few of them, but we usually have our email. We usually email fights. <laughs> We're pretty good about not doing it in uh, person in front of people, especially. Yeah, mom and dad don't fight in public. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you like the most about playing with Bobby? He's just a, a great, great player. You know, probably the best bidder ever. Absolutely one of the best card players and a true competitor. And and he and I have both the same goals to work really hard and continue to improve and, and realize the game's evolving and to take our game to higher levels at, at, as the game continues to progress. And, you know, I've found Bobby to be my perfect partner for that. Did you two have to learn to fight cleanly? <laughs> I don't know. That was a long time ago. I think we started in 1998. And uh, um, yeah, maybe. Uh, no, that was a long time. That was, that was a lot of punches ago. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> but it sounds like there's an intrinsic respect there. Yeah. Well, I mean, we love each other like brothers and have a great deal of caring for each other. And, and we both root so hard for the other one that it, it's very good for the partnership. But he did have to teach me how to bid because I came from a background. I used to play with Fred Stewart, who was my stepfather and also another excellent player. He's, you know, a multi-time national champion, et cetera. And, but we played precision and didn't really know, like, standard. So Bobby was more of an old-school rough stone guy that, that knew bidding really well. So when we started our partnership, he really had to teach me the beginnings and the middles and the ends. And eventually I became a pretty good bidder, I think understatement of the century how did you originally connect with bobby uh, which you know bridges it's, it's a small world and you know we both played and you know we both had success with our partners he and his regular partner at the time peter washell had more success than my partner and i fred stewart and at some point i don't know exactly how it happened but fred and i broke up and peter and bobby broke up and, and bobby and i decided to play together so you broke up with your stepfather 
<laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Well, maybe he <laughs> broke up with me. We, I didn't say, I said we broke up. <laughs> you did. That's an you assumption did. by you. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was. I take it it wasn't hugely acrimonious. <laughs> no, we, we, we actually, we, we are close to this day. We have no problems. It was just um, place and situation. And, you know, it's the last nationals we were at, we went out and had dinner. Just him and I, it was great. Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? Well, I would say the answer is I used to have a favorite tournament, and now I have a current favorite tournament. So the Cavendish was my favorite tournament when it was in Las Vegas. But when they moved it to Monaco, I, I lost a lot of interest in it. Why? Um, oddly, there was a lot more money involved in Las Vegas, which is kind of strange because you would think Monaco would have bigger prize pools and more money. But also Las Vegas is like home field advantage for me. I mean, I played poker for 48, 72-hour sessions in a row there. I've been around Vegas for my entire adult life. I've spent time in Las Vegas. So it just felt like, you know, being a sports team and having them come in your home arena, where Monaco is so different than Vegas. It's like really fancy and run differently. And it's just not as much fun for me. I mean, I, I think I don't. I, I think the event still goes on. I did play it once. I played it once um, with Zia. That was the only time I, no, and once with Bobby also. But uh, when it was in Vegas, it was so much more special to me. So now the current favorite, I would say, is the U.S. team trials because that event is just run. I mean, Jan Martel and her team just do a tremendous job. We disagree on whether it should be played on tablets or not, but that's a whole other argument. But the event is, you know, it's to qualify the U.S. for international play. It's, it's long matches. It's very well run. Very good competition, and it's in the United States, and it's very familiar. And, you know, I'd say I look forward to that event the most each year. What's the controversy about playing on tablets for the team trials versus cards? Don't get me started. <laughs> no, I want to get you started. <laughs> so bridge is actually a card game, in my opinion. Many people think that bridge is a game that can be played with cards. I'm not with them. I'm not saying that they may not be down the right, the future, that this is the direction it has to go. But the game I learned and the game I love is to have a deck of cards in my hand, have cards in my hand, and play cards and be around people and playing cards. And whether, so if you're playing on a tablet, if you're playing on BBO or Real Brew, whatever you're playing on, it's not the same thing to me. And the way the USBF runs it is reasonable because they do it on tablets and you're in the same room with one of your opponents. And it's kind of card-like, but it's not cards. If, if I'm going to do things on the computer, like there's so many other things I could do on the computer than, than play bridge. Like bridge, it's a card game. It's like, let's keep it a card game. So you're talking about the physical experience of playing a card game versus a game on a tablet or a computer. I guess there's a couple of things implicit in that. You're literally holding the cards. Mm -hmm. You probably have to be in the same space as the other person. Mm-hmm. And you picture you picture the cards differently, like you you see. I mean, I played a lot of poker online and and live with cards, and I call I guess it's face to face and online is what they want me to be calling it. I don't know, but you actually picture the cards differently. Like playing with a live deck of cards, it's easier for someone like me to get an imprint of the cards and just picture out the five of spades, seven of spades, nine of spades, boom, 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 and it just goes around. And it's just so natural because like cards can dance around in my head. But computer images don't do that. Now, I'm sure you can train yourself to do that, but I think it's different. And I think it's also a somewhat different skill set 
that mostly the same people will still win at, but it's still a little bit different. Did you have to train yourself to picture the physical card? No, it's just because I started playing cards so young. It just came to me at some point in my dreams, cards would dance around and, you know, oh, the Queen of Spades and the Seven of Clubs. And it's like, you know, dreams of cards. <laughs> but it's so interesting to me was you're telling us that you ha- you would have to train yourself to do that with digital representations of cards. Yeah. I'm just latching into this because I feel like it's one of the few experiences of bridge we might have in common. <laughs> the, the difficulty for some people to visualize the hands, does it allow you to understand that a little better? Certainly, it, it definitely does. You know, it takes a lot of extra focus for me to remember and process all the cards digitally as it does with physical cards in my hand at a live table. You know, I, I know that especially from playing multiple games of poker at a time on the computer compared to playing poker games like Seven Cards said live. It's just the cards just get pictured differently. So I, I do absolutely see what you're saying. And it is easier for me to picture some of the problems that people would have picturing the cards. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Another thing that I see that is quite different playing online versus holding the cards is that there's so many things you can do wrong when you're actually holding the cards. You can bid out of turn. You can lead out of turn. You can do all these things that you're not able to do when you're, um, when you're playing online. And I'm wondering if that's another aspect of the game that you appreciate and you think there's, there's room for that in the game or at your level, do those things not happen? I wouldn't say they don't happen. I mean, there's physical errors, but there's also misclicks and other things like that. I mean, people, some people would just say they're part of the game, and I, I don't really care so much about that aspect of it. I, I would say, actually, one of the worst mistakes I can remember making is because I had cards, and it's directly related to what you asked. I was playing with Fred Stewart in the U.S. team trials a long time ago, and uh, he led a club, and I signaled incorrectly i played like the deuce when i really should have played the eight so when fred was going to get in he was going to play the wrong card so 
as soon as Declara played a Trump, I revoked to pitch like the deuce of spades to say, no, I really don't like spades. So I followed up my horrible play at trick one with revoking at trick two. And none of this worked out very well for us at all. And this could only happen. Well, half of it could have happened on the computer. I could have made the terrible play at trick one, but I couldn't have revoked. <laughs> That's so funny. How does your wife feel about these epic 48-hour sessions playing poker? Yeah. Well, we've been together since 86, 1986. Yeah. I met her actually in Portland. She was uh, at the Nationals in Portland. She, she doesn't play bridge, but she happened to be at the hotel. And uh, she's been through like the bridge and the Wall Street and the poker. And, you know, she knows when I'm focused on something, I'm doing that. And, you know, so if I go to Vegas to the Bellagio or to one of these hotels to play poker for or when I used to do it online and stuff and I was in the grind for it, you know, she would get used to it. I, I wouldn't say that it would be perfect, but she understands me as well as anyone's capable of understanding me. And, and she's really terrific. Is there something that you always pack to take with you or that you always have with you at a tournament? I'm hoping that this answer will be true by the time this gets published, but it used to always be cigarettes, but I haven't had a cigarette in two weeks. So I'm hoping that the cigarettes that I used to always pack, I won't always have to pack anymore. <laughs> well, good job. How do you like to unwind after a big tournament, say in Vegas? Well, I would say like after the day is over, I'm a big go to the bar and have like a vodka and a beer, maybe another vodka and unwind that way and hang out with my friends and, you know, smoke some cigarettes and chill out that way. And then after the tournament, um, you know, I try to return back to my normal life pretty quickly because, like I said, my wife doesn't play bridge and I usually need a decent amount of sleep for a day or so. And, and then I get a lot better. And of course, my mood's dependent on whether I lost or I won, but I, I take losing better than I used to and I enjoy winning better than I used to, as I said. <laughs> We've asked a number of people how they unwind after a tournament and no surprise, many people say that they enjoy to have a drink. And of course, we all understand that. But it is interesting too. I wonder if it's a hangover of a bit of a blokey culture in Bridge. You're not all saying we go and do some yoga together and unwind <laughs> or a, a meditation session, which of course, you know, is healthier in many ways. So I understand the desire to to decompress, but any thoughts? You know, the bar is like, a, even if you're not drinking, over the years you develop certain new friendships that, and, and it's, it's a social atmosphere. I don't know, I'm not a yoga person or meditator, so I don't know how social that is, but it's nice to like just blow off some steam or go over some hands or tell some jokes. And, you know, I guess it could be having like some orange juice or something like that, but that just... Seems a little bit unnatural to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know also that after some of the tournaments, there's a bit of a tradition for the players to get together at a local karaoke bar. Is that mm. something that you enjoy? I don't, I've done it maybe once or twice. It's not really my thing. It, okay, it's, you're not um, out there banging out, I will no, survive. No, no, I know that they, <laughs> I know that a group of the Europeans and the Americans, they do it, but it, it's not something I do all that often. What's the most memorable or unexpected place that you've ever played? I would say a number of years ago, I was at Newark Airport and um, I was on a flight that was way delayed, not delayed enough that you just gave up on it, but delayed where you're going to wait it out. And I was like kind of in a bad mood about it. And then I saw these like four kids, teenagers, like sitting around playing bridge. And I was like, this is pretty amazing. 
So I just asked them if I could just like watch them and stuff. And they're like, sure. And they're like, do you know how to play? And I'm like, yeah, I know how to play. And they asked if I wanted to like cut in with them. I'm like, sure. So I played with these kids that had no idea how to play. And at some point they said, how did you do that? You know, like there was like things that were happening with the cards. <laughs> it was like, magic. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like, how did you get all those tricks? Could you explain? And I like, they never knew what my resume was in bridge, but it was, it, it was really, for me, it was really fun just to see these joyful kids playing and not really knowing what they're doing and, and me getting to join in and being totally anonymous in this game and playing with them at Newark Airport. Love it. Oh, that's so delightful. I wonder if we should take that up as a bit of a mission if any of us are delayed, always travel with a deck of cards and look for a group of kids and offer to teach them. That's fabulous. They had the card. They were the ones playing. Yeah. But no, I agree. Airports, there's a lot of time lying lying around. So, well. And they were having so much fun. I mean, it was great. Did you have a sense of what it was they were enjoying about it? No. Uh, I, like I could just tell they were enjoying it, but it's not. I, I wish I could place it and say I know exactly what they're feeling, but I, I I couldn't really do that. I'm wondering though if it's going to your point about literally holding the cards, if it's the social aspect of the game. Yeah, that that actually is a great great catch because there's no way that would have been happening on a computer. Right, because people talk about developing Bridge or promoting Bridge to young people as an online game, and I think there's a lot of strong arguments for that and there's a lot of benefits from that. But I also think maybe that people actually enjoy sitting around with each other, holding the cards, playing. I think that for sure that's true. And and a lot of the young players I know, I'm a little surprised and happy about really want it to continue as a card game and do not want it to become just a computer game, an online game. And I do think that there is that social element of what was happening at Newark Airport or what could happen in the future. I think there's probably room for both. And I think I feel personally that it's a mistake to focus on one or the other, but let's not get into that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there is certainly room for both. Yeah. I'm willing to settle at this point. <laughs> <laughs> What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you were playing bridge or at a tournament or... All right. Well, this seemed really funny to me. I don't know if it's going to seem really funny to you, but it, it's our old friend Joe Grew was involved. I was playing in a regional with um, Michael Rosenberg as my partner. So Joe psyched a spade, not point wise, but he only had four spades. So he showed five or more spades. And then he and his partner ended up bidding to seven no Trump. And the key to this hand was that Joe had stiff ace of spades opposite king, queen, eight, deuce. So if somebody had jack 10, nine, tripleton, you would have four spade tricks. But the odds are just so much against that. So Joe, being practical and psychological player, decided to like play the hand out in such a way that he had another spade left. So he pitched his spade and make somebody try to guard the spade that over him. But it turned out I had jack 10, nine, tripleton of spades, and there was nothing else to guard but the last 13th winner. So he went down. So Michael Rosenberg, out of nowhere, and this is just shocking because he never says anything. He said, you had the eight of spades to Joe? And his, I can't do his accent. I usually can't understand them, but I love him. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe was like, when he realized that I had Jack 10, 9, third, he gets up. There's this empty bag, paper bag right by him. And he just kicks this empty bag. But unfortunately, there was a half-eaten muffin in it. So this bag goes flying across the room, like, I don't know, 50, 100 feet, whatever, like a torpedo, and just, like, hits some lady in the head. Now it oh, barely no. really actually hits this lady in the head. 
<laughs> but she's screaming. She's calling for the ambulance. Like, this is like the biggest thing that's ever happened in the world. And it's like, they're trying to like work out what happened here. And I mean, I'm just like, I see she's okay, but I see she's screaming. I know what happened. I'm just dying laughing. I mean, I just can't help myself. Joe's like freaked out. Michael is like, what did I do? Joe's just like hiding under the table. It's just like, it's, just, it's like, it was so funny. So eventually they were going to take Joe to a conduct and ethics committee for this horrible act that he did. And I decided to represent him as his lawyer, which was kind of hilarious because I'm certainly not a lawyer or a representative. And um, we ended up settling on Joe and I bought them and their teammates dinner at the nicest restaurant in town. Now they wanted Joe and I to go with them, but I I drew the line on that because it seemed like they were more going to lecture us about our bad behavior. (laughs) (laughs) So I I personally thought that was hilarious. (laughs) That's very, very funny. That is funny. I mean, how unlucky was the guy? There was like Jack 10-9, throw it a spade, and a half-eaten muffin in the same (laughs) hand. It's crazy. Adding insult to injury. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, aside from the the risk of physical injuries, is there anything that makes you nervous or uncomfortable, tense at the table? Um, I think usually like before I play the first board of a big match, you know, I, I feel butterflies. And then I remember the first time I played the finals of a major knockout and I was pretty nervous. And I remember asking Michael Rosenberg, like, do you have any, he's my teammate, do you have any advice for me? And he said, don't do anything stupid. They're like, thanks. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but uh you know, I still get butterflies before big matches, but once I have the cards in my hand and I sit down to play, I think I'm pretty okay with that stuff. So you're not having to apply particular techniques or mental tools to get yourself in the most focused state or most centered? What I do sometimes, like, just to get to focus myself, I used to do this all the time. I'd be like, all right, watch the spots, because if you remember the spots, basically they tell the story of the hand. You know, trust your partner. So watch the spots, trust your partner, focus. So I would say if I had like a mantra, is that what it's called? Sure. Okay, let's go with mantra. If I had one, it would be watch the spots, trust your partner and focus. And that would relax me if when, when I would say that to myself. What's the most annoying thing about bridge? Losing. At least not even close. <laughs> I, I mean, if you want to take out losing, it's even more annoying as being cheated and losing. <laughs> so that would be the absolute most annoying. <laughs> is it worse to lose when you've tried your best and you just didn't work out the right line of play or when you've just made a completely idiotic mistake? Or do you know you don't do those? No, I do. Sure. Everybody does. <laughs> and I did. Uh, it's much worse to lose if you play poorly. Like it's bad to lose when you play well or well for a human. Um, but when you play poorly and you lose, it's, it's just gut wrenching. Can you share a time when that happened? Um, I actually thought it was going to happen in the semifinals of the last world championships. I had really struggled sleeping for like for the first five days of the tournament. I think I averaged about literally two to two and a half hours of sleep a night. And I was fine until I got to the semifinals. And then I was just, the cards were not dancing for me on that day. And I, I was really struggling and I played what was definitely one of my worst matches. And I thought we were going to lose. And, um, and we won. So it's not the, quite the experience because if we had lost, then I would have the total experience. And then somehow magically, like after that, I got the best two nights sleep I 
had gotten the entire tournament the next two days and and I was fine for the finals. So I was pretty sure I was going to experience that in the uh, semifinals of the Rose and Blue. Just connecting this, though, to the issue of maybe nervousness or some sort of discomfort around the game. If you're not sleeping, what are you, are you replaying the hands to yourself at night or is it just a nervous energy? What's going on? I don't know. Sometimes you just can't sleep. You know, what would happen in that case would I would fall asleep very easily. So I'd fall asleep, let's say at 11 or 1130 at night, and then I'd wake up at two in the morning. And then I'd be like, all right, I'm going to try to go back to sleep and lay here and just think of the ocean or do whatever or this or that. And next thing I'm like going to be first down for breakfast when it opens. <laughs> and that's just where you're at. And then, okay, it's game time soon. <laughs> but is it related to the bridge tournament or do you just generally have trouble sleeping? I'm usually a great sleeper at bridge tournaments and in general. Like sleeping, I think it was just like a weird, strange hopefully one-off situation because sleeping isn't usually my problem. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. Are there any books that have particularly helped your game? Um, I really am not much of a bridge book reader. And, uh, you know, my dad wrote a beginning bridge book, which I don't even think was isn't published anymore, which I read. It's called Bridge the Gap. I doubt you could find it anymore. The way I learned, like, from books would be I would look at as I was learning, I still do this, although I now realize that the records are a lot less accurate than I'd like them to be. But uh, I would look at world championship books and I would look at the hands and analyze the hands before I saw how they were played or how whoever wrote the book analyzed it. So it was just taking those hands and self-analyzing them and then reading about what actually happened. But as far as normal bridge books, I'm not big on those. Is there a hot button subject in bridge that you're particularly passionate about? Well, cheating at the high level has certainly been something I've been pretty much fighting against for a long time. And I would say that besides live cards, which we've already discussed versus uh, not live cards. Uh, you know, I, I think that cheating at any level in bridge is obviously terrible and it ruins the game. It doesn't matter what level, whether you're a beginner or intermediate or you're playing for fun or you're playing for half a master point. But I've personally put a lot of energy into taking out cheaters and finding cheaters and helping to clean up the game at the higher level. And I would say that's been the issue that I've been most involved with. There's been a recent scandal in the chess community about cheating. And I've seen a little bit of discussion on bridge winners about mm -hmm. comparing the response of the governing bodies. Do you have mm -hmm. any thoughts about how cheating is handled? I think it's complicated. I think that the rules are archaic and, and they've done good jobs of changing. I, mean, I think there's some really good people that have come into power that I'm hoping that change them. You know, I think that Eric Laurent in the EBL is, is very good and Jan Commerce. But I think that the penalties have to be really harsh. And I personally think that if a committee of your peers finds you guilty of cheating, you should be banned from the game for life. And I would be willing to sign a document saying that I, I Steve Weinstein, accept that because I just don't think it's going to happen unless you cheat. And if you're the one in a trillion person that it happens to, that's, just, you know, <laughs> go buy a lotto ticket. <laughs> It's just, it's too crazy. It's like, yeah, okay, so maybe, you know, I, I understand, like, you never want to have somebody be, it, this is not a life or death situation. I mean, Bridge is a great game. We all love to play it and stuff, but 
it is technically possible that somebody could be found to be cheating that didn't cheat. I just, A, don't think it'll happen. And it's so remote and you'll stop so much more cheating this way. And the ones that do cheat, there will be this real disincentive. They will never be able to play again. And that's a lot better than I can come back in two years or four years or seven years or, or whatever. I don't disagree with you at all. I just, when you compare it with the sort of the legal system and, and somebody's life being at jeopardy or their freedom being at jeopardy, you think of the police and the prosecution as having all this power to mm-hmm. potentially deploy against someone who might be innocent. I'm just imagining by analogy, if there was someone who had a great deal of power and was able to kind of stack the deck against someone who was, so to speak, who was actually innocent, but, you know, they could be a target of somebody who had a vindictive vendetta against them. I don't know how you protect against that by basically assuming that if someone has been adjudicated by their peers as guilty, that's that's the end of the story. I mean, I, I feel like that's a, a problem that is one of imagination, and, and maybe I'm naive, but you know, I think if you take like a committee of, let's say, ideally, the perfect thing would be expert bridge players from different countries that are retired. So like a Larry Cohn, a Fred Gittleman, a P.O. Sunderland, you could mix it around where, so there's no longer any competitive interests where they're competing, you know, that they're competing for the same client or the, this or that. And the bridge hands aren't going to lie. And, and these people are not going to find somebody guilty of cheating that didn't cheat. I guess you could say, oh, well, what if somebody paid you off millions of dollars and all these things? But like, realistically, this isn't going to happen. Right. And I think it's much more important to have penalty with teeth that creates a true disincentive and can be applied. Put it this way. I would have absolutely no worry about being judged by it. I'm not worried about some enemy buying off this jury and going, hey, Steve Weiss, he cheats. I'm going to bring you these hands. Let's prove that he cheats. And we're going to throw him out of the game forever. I'm willing to say, OK, let's do it. Let's go for it. Let me present my case. You guys present your case. Let the judges decide. And if they find that I cheated, I'll see you later. What's your best bridge memory? It might go back to my first bridge, playing real bridge in a club with my dad when I was like, um, I guess I was 13 in upstate New York. And uh, I remember I opened one no and he put me in six no and there was like 12 top tricks and I could have taken a finesse for the 13th, which I didn't because what's a finesse, but I made those 12 tricks. And my dad was just like, you made your slam, Steve. That's just great. And it wasn't until like, I don't even know when, when I realized, oh, wait, I could have made 13 tricks, you know, but it was still like, it was, you know, it was just such a joyful experience playing with him. And it got me absolutely hooked and it was just so much fun. What has Bridge taught you about life? I don't know if it's so much that what Bridge has taught me about life. I think it has a lot more to do with the people I've gotten to know from Bridge and my experiences in life and with those people that have taught me a lot about life. I mean, Bridge obviously helps you understand competition and fair play and honesty and losing and winning and all those things. But the true mentors and things that I think I've learned from Bridge have come from the Jimmy Canes and the Nick Nichols and the people that I've known, and I'm not limiting to those two. I'm just going to, there's so many more mentors I've had. And, you know, like our own Wall Street, my mentor was, besides Jimmy Kane, was John Mulhern, which he just taught me so much about life. And that was kind of indirectly through Bridge. 
So I, I think that the life lessons, even though the game gives you a really good framework and, and shows people's true colors really well, but I think more of the life lessons have come from the people I've known through the game. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really love to play? All right, I'm going to tell you a little secret here. Because if anybody that knows me would answer this question and they go, oh, it's Flannery. He's always going to say Flannery. And I actually do like Flannery. But I don't even know if it's my favorite. But I defend it because people hate it so much. And so it just annoys me. I mean, I remember one time I was um, in California. I was uh, working with Vase Joel, And it was a number of years ago. I want to say like 10, 12 years ago. And there was like people going after Flannery, like for no reason at all. So I just wrote an article through the middle of the night called, I love Flannery. I'm serious. I'm bridge winners. And um, so I, I guess arguably that's my favorite, but it's really for the parts of it that people don't understand and the advantages of not when you open Tudotman's Flannery, but all the other hands that it takes out and how it changes like a hard pass and spade and stuff. But like I said, the dirty little secret is it might not even be my favorite convention. And what might be? Mixed raises might be my favorite convention. It's like it gets the number of trumps in, it gets in the way of the opponents, it gets you to like games. They come up frequently. And um, I think they're really effective and they're very simple. Any conventions that you really do not like? Uh, I think the only truly terrible, well, there's probably truly terrible conventions, but the really bad ones are the ones people forget. Because if you're going to forget a convention, then it's really, really bad to play it. But otherwise, I don't stand in much judgment of conventions. What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given? I don't, I, I don't know if it was best, but it was very memorable to me. I was playing in Las Vegas in the Cavendish, and my partner was Zia Mahmood. And we were going into the, the last session of the Cavendish. And now Zia has got a reputation of being very hard on his partners and stuff. And I think that he plays with me and is especially nice to me so that I go around and tell him people how nice he is. I, I, think, I, I think he's got some kind of like master plan because he's always a great partner to me. Anyway, we're playing and we're in the lead going into the last session. And before we started playing, Zia like pulled me aside and he said, all right, Weinstein, I know that you're just thinking you want to coast to victory and have easy hands and have the session be over and, and we're going to win. But that's not what you should want. You want hard hands because hard hands is where we're going to win the event. And that's what you should be rooting for. And it was really wise words that I never forgot. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. It's been fantastic. Thanks so much. Well, thanks very much, Catherine and Jocelyn. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Steve Weinstein. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Paul Chirasso and Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. You'll get a monthly newsletter and other supporter benefits. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Steve says, 
When playing a tournament, you should hope for hard hands because hard hands are where you're going to win the event. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, partner. (laughs) Yes, sure. (laughs) Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.